I believe health is the greatest form of wealth we have, which is why I'm proud to be partnered with Brothers in Arms. Brothers in Arms is a wellness brand dedicated to working with veterans, first responders, and anyone on the front line. Through their education, support, and premium CBD products, they help alleviate and restore the lives of those that have been affected by physical and mental trauma. Learn about the life-changing benefits and power of CBD and join their community today. Links can be found on the MCP website and IG page. Welcome to Multiple Calls, episode 41. I'm Scott Hewlett. Do you have an attitude, or does an attitude have you? Over varying spans of time, we are all oscillating between the two, some faster and more often than others. Through choices like meditation or flow state, once you experience a more beneficial state of being and observe and recognize a shift in your mindset because of it, you provide yourself with not only a new universe to exist in, but the ways to return to it again and again as well. That's the key. It's not focusing on getting or being forced off track, but on the returns. The conscious and unconscious returns. Throughout her life, my guest this episode has decided as often as possible to choose her mindset and attitude. And it has served her well in facing her goals and the challenges that have been placed in her path. We hope you enjoy our talk. Here's Jennifer Dawkins. Start by telling me where you're originally from and your family and your upbringing, and we'll go from there. Awesome. My birth father, I don't know. He left this situation when I was about five. And then my mom and my stepdad got together and they were together for about seven years. And then they split up. But I always maintain a relationship with him. So he's the father that I know. Changed my last name to his last name when I was 18. So I don't have the same last name as my mom or my brother. I am originally from Edmonton, Alberta. Actually, I was born in Ontario, but I grew up most of my life in Edmonton, Alberta. And then when I was 18 years old, my mom and my brother moved to Jasper, Alberta, and I didn't want to go with them. I was, uh, I don't want to go to some small town and thinking of Edmonton, some big city. So I stayed in Edmonton for a few months on my own. And then, of course, young person, first time on my own, it was tough. I managed to convince a friend to move to Jasper with me. And that changed my life. I got into a lot of the outdoor sports that Jasper has opportunities to do. Were you athletic and hobby focused when you were young? When I was young, it was kind of the era where the kids just went outside and we did things. So in terms of organized sports, I did a little bit of soccer as a kid, but it kind of just fizzled. But I did always ride bikes. In fact, I even remember my first bike that I bought myself. I saved up my money from my paper route and I bought myself a blue and yellow BMX red line <laughs> and cruised around the neighborhood. So I was sporty in that sense. And then became a bit of a punk rocker kind of looking teenager. I had the mohawk. And I got super into music and wasn't so much into doing any kind of athletics until I moved to Jasper. And that's when I really got interested in mountain biking and tried some whitewater kayaking, telemark skiing, all the things, because that's what everybody did there. So you don't do the same kinds of things that you would do if you were a city youth. Telemark's always fascinated me. Yeah, I skied downhill for a season there. 
But then I wanted to be able to go and do backcountry stuff. And we're talking like 30 years ago now. So I couldn't afford all the backcountry mountaineering stuff. So I took my downhill skis, put some Telemark bindings on them, bought a pair of double leather Telemark boots. And that was the end of the story. And all I did was Telemark because then I could do it at the ski hill. And then I could go to like a hut or something like that. I did that a lot when I was younger. I haven't done it in a long time because now I live in Vancouver and telemarking isn't exactly a wet snow kind of sport. You can ride bikes outside year round here. So the skiing fizzled for me when I moved out here. But definitely the strongest legs around telemarking. (laughs) Yeah, a lot of lunges. I don't know if I could do that many lunges anymore. (laughs) So what are you doing now to stay fit on and off the job? So now I do a lot of riding. I gravel ride a lot and I commute to work when I can. I road bike. I recently got back into mountain biking. I used to be really into trail running and I would run ultras. I do have a bit of a history of doing ultra stuff. I've done several Ironmans, Ultraman, ultra trail runs, ultra swims. That was kind of my wheelhouse. I always had this mindset where I was never the fastest at doing things. So it was just kind of taught myself to go further than the next person. It seemed to work for me. (laughs) Do you find it meditative too, to get into the flow? I do. And I love the challenge of it. I love pushing myself, feeling that hurt, and then knowing that if I can get through this, I can get through anything. And in, in fact, it really shaped how I managed my cancer diagnosis. And we'll talk about that, I'm sure, in a bit. But in terms of doing ultra events, and even something like an Ironman, which to some people is an ultra, but you have to think of things one thing at a time. When you're swimming, you can't worry about if you get a flat on the bike. When you're out on the bike, you can't worry about if you're going to get a stomach ache when you're running. And so you just have to do things one step at a time. And it's the same thing when you're out there trail running, ultra runs. Like You can't try and project the future. There's too many variables. So you just do things one thing at a time. So that really shaped how I've done a lot of things. Were you always a strong swimmer? Because as an outsider, I would think it's easier to get into Ironmans and Ultramans if you're a good swimmer because it's easier to learn how to ride a bike and run. True. Yeah. Well, I'm definitely a strong swimmer. I don't think I'm the fastest. I'm pretty much a middle of the packer kind of thing, but I'm definitely strong. I started swimming when I moved to Jasper. My mom started lifeguarding for Parks Canada, and that's how she ended up moving to Jasper. And my mom was only 21 years older than me. So at the time, she wasn't even 40. And I saw these lifeguards and I was like, I can do that. And I pursued it and I went and did all my training for lifeguarding. I always laugh at this because I was lifeguarding at the town pool and these older guys would come in and they were training for an Ironman. And when I say older guys, it's funny because these older guys were not even 40. (laughs) But in my mind, these are these older guys. So my early 20s is when I had it in my head, I wanted to do an Ironman. So I started to swim more consistently planning for something like that. I did always ride a bike and got into running, I guess, around that same time. My knees don't like it anymore. So I got back into mountain biking. Then I can be back into the forest again. So it's been a fun couple of years getting back into that. And bikes are so much better than they were 20 years ago. Yeah, you get a lot more for your money now. It's incredible what you can ride now, just based on the bike itself. Right. Yeah, what it allows you to do. Yeah. So I do a lot of that. Pre-COVID, I was doing quite a bit of yoga. So that's kind of where I'm at right now. I just recently listened to Goggins' book, Can't Hurt Me. Have you ever read that or listened to it? 
Yep. It was amazing. I loved it. <laughs> a lot of what he has to say resonates for sure. I'm an avid audiobook listener, Automobile University, really. I've been listening to audiobooks and podcasts for well over a decade. So even running, trail running and training for Ironman, I would listen because when you're on the bike, it's not like listening to music where you're distracted. To me, it's kind of like riding next to somebody and hearing them talk to you. You mentioned to me that in high school, you did a work experience thing at a radio station. Tell me about that. Yeah. So when I was in high school, I did work experience at the University of Alberta radio station. And I wanted to actually get into radio. My dad is retired now, but he worked for CBC. So I was exposed to that as a young person. And I had it in my head. That's what I wanted to do. And then I stayed volunteering at the university radio station and I voiced radio commercials. I was 16 years old. <laughs> That's awesome. It was super fun. In fact, I still think about how I would love to be one of those voices reading audiobooks. So that might be my retirement gig. <laughs> That's a great idea. Yeah. Well, maybe you write a book and then you can start by narrating your own and then go from there. Well, maybe. It's a little bit of work. <laughs> <laughs> Everything worth doing is, right? That's true. Give me a bit of your academic background, previous jobs that you had, and what led to you wanting to get into the fire service. So when I moved to Jasper, I had a ton of different jobs because that's what young people do there. And the employers there, they work with each other to manage the staff. So I waitress, like I said, I was a lifeguard. I worked for a raft guiding company. So I, I had a lot of jobs when I was living in Jasper. And I had thought that I was going to work in tourism because that's kind of what people do in a place like that. And I was working at Jasper Park Lodge at the time. And I did one of those, what you should be when you grow up kind of tests. Somehow I came across this notion that I was going to be a police officer. So I packed up my stuff and moved out to Maple Ridge, which is a suburb of Vancouver. I had a friend that lived there and I started taking some criminology classes and wanted to do search and rescue. And I remember contacting them, but they didn't have an intake. So there was an ad in the local paper looking for volunteer firefighters. And I thought, oh, this will look good on my resume for the RCMP. So I applied. Now it's a career department, but at the time it was 100% volunteer and got through the process. And because it was 100% volunteer at the time, a lot of the people that I was around, they were using it as a stepping stone to get into career departments. So I actually was hanging out with all these other guys. I was the only gal. This was in 1997. And I remember going to watch a physical. They were trying to get into this department. And the recruiter said, don't wait to get into the local fire college here. Try and get into other fire colleges. And I had competed in the combat challenge at the time, too, in 1999. So I never actually ended up applying for the RCMP or any policing, for that matter. I applied to fire school. I went to school in Alberta. I came back. I applied for a few departments. And I was hired quickly. I love that even from a young age, you were very open and adventurous in trying to figure out what it is you wanted to do. You're right. I have been adventurous. And in fact, I'm still taking courses. I'm a lifelong learner. So I've been taking courses for as long as I can remember. Finally, I'm going to marry them up into a degree. I've already alluded to the fact that I'm a cancer survivor. But even before that, I had this idea that life is a one-way ticket. So I've always tried to do as many things as I can and experience different things. You got your certificate in emergency management, and you also mentioned you're three quarters away through your bachelor's in interdisciplinary studies. So tell me about what that's all about. 
So last year during lockdown, I managed to send in all of my documents to a university and they added everything up and said, oh, well, you're almost done. And (laughs) it was a bit of a surprise. I'm doing this for me. So I don't need a degree in business or a degree in psychology. I want to take courses that I find are going to help me in my life or that I find super interesting. That's why I'm going with the interdisciplinary studies. You've also got hired as a tech with GIBC? Yes. When I was still a volunteer firefighter, I was volunteering in the same community as our provincial fire academy. So I applied up there and I became a a technician. So what that means is I was lighting the fire and running the props and things like that at the fire college. And that was an awesome experience. It gave me a lot of exposure to different departments and to different people. It was quite amazing. I think it was 2016 was when I became an instructor. So I've been teaching up there. And actually yesterday was my first day back since pre-diagnosis and COVID. And so I was teaching the recruits yesterday. It was awesome. It was great to be back in that realm. It's always good energy to be around them. It is, you know, they're super keen. They want to learn. It was a fun day. And just working with people from other departments, it's been a long time because of COVID and what I went through in 2020. So it was a really great experience to be back teaching and working with people from all over the place again. So it's good. So when you finally did get exposed to fire, did it click with you like, oh, after all the searching, this is me? Or is it a career that you love, but you could also see yourself loving and thriving in other careers? And this is just the one you've chosen. I think it was kind of a destiny thing for me in a lot of ways to be one of the pioneers out West. I have no doubt that I could love a lot of different career choices because I'm pretty open-minded and I like a lot of different things. I do love my career for sure. There's been moments, I'm not going to (laughs) lie, you know, being a bit of a pioneer, it definitely presents with some challenges. It sounds absolutely absurd to say pioneer as a female in the fire service with only 25 years, including my volunteer time. But really, there weren't any, there were hardly any, like a handful of women back when I started now here in BC. And of course, we don't have the same population that Ontario does. So things are a little bit different in that sense. But now I'm going to guess we probably have 130 career women in the province, maybe more. What was the path from volunteering and being a tech at GIBC to getting on full-time? Well, like I said, I was hanging out with all these guys that were aspiring career firefighters. And I was along for the ride a lot when they were practicing and they competed in combat challenge. And in fact, it's funny because when I got hired, that was the fitness test you had to do to get on my department. It should be. Well, I have actually since changed my perception on that because when you pick up a dummy and you literally have to pick it up and drag it back, that's not what we do in a fire because where's the hot smoke and the toxic stuff? You're not standing up and dragging a dummy backwards, right? Maybe it should be a dummy drag at the end? Yeah, it's a dummy drag. And then you look at other things like when you have to lean out the window and pull up the donut. I get that you have to have the upper body strength to be able to do that, but I think the testing should kind of meet some of the tasks that you would do. So it's more relevant to have people have a fixed ladder on the side of a building and have people have to raise the ladder. So I think that there are things that can be done that are just as challenging that are probably a little bit more relevant to what we actually do as firefighters. Oh, I'd completely agree with that. I always approached it as the closest thing to what I felt when I have really had to work hard on a scene, the level of effort I had to put in. 
Yes. But I do remember in my early years thinking, well, if I had to do this, then everybody should have to do this, right? In fact, it's funny because we had to do it in big, sloppy rubber boots and men's gloves. The equipment didn't fit appropriately because why would it? I mean, it's only recently that we're getting uniforms that are designed for women's bodies. But I used to think that everybody should have to do the combat challenge. And I've since reevaluated that. And we just need to find tests that are relevant to the work that we do. But I do agree that that level of exertion, for sure, needs to be there. So maybe it can be an inspiration to put together something that would be a fitness test annually for everybody and for candidates to get on. Right. And I do think that you did actually just nail it there, having those tests that we need to do annually. And they can't be punitive because that's not very motivational to people, but definitely having some kind of a fitness test. Because it's funny, you see young people, you're in the best shape of your life when you get hired. Then there's a lot of departments. There's no expectation that you have to maintain anything. Yeah, it's crazy. It blows my mind, actually. Yeah, it's shocking. It'd probably blow the mind of a lot of the public too. Yeah, you're right. Those people are very few and far between that absolutely have zero fucks to give with respect to their fitness level. And especially when you're exposed to a lot of your coworkers that are into that. It's definitely shifting. The generations coming on now, there's a larger percentage that have that part of themselves dialed in as part of their lifestyle. Right. It should be a lifestyle. That's who you are. And to me, that makes the candidate the best. Does anything stand out for you for your recruit class? What was that like? Tell me what you remember of it. My class was pretty big. I do remember that. We showed up early. We had our morning PT. In my group, there were four women that were hired and one didn't make it through training. And then one didn't make it through the first couple of weeks in the fire hall. It was pretty crushing for sure, but you know, it's not a job for everybody. We were broken into groups, did our rotations, probably quite similar to other departments. And then from there, assigned to probationary fire halls. And you spend first six months doing drills. Then you do your probationary exam and you're still on probation for a full year. Back then, you would change to a different fire company. And in my department, you stayed on the same shift. I was the first female on that shift. It's pretty fuzzy. (laughs) It's a long time ago. You touched on there about it not being a job for everyone. Do you think there should be more scrutiny? Not everybody makes it through. What's your take on how we handle things post-hire? Each municipality runs their recruitment and their training differently. So I don't know if there's any magic formula for that because it's definitely going to be different in larger departments versus smaller departments. But I think you have to give their recruiters the benefit of the doubt that they're doing their due diligence and making sure that the right candidates are making it through the process. But that's a tough one because you can't know everything about people. I mean, we don't know everything about people that we've known for years. So how do you know? I mean, we try and find out if that person is a good fit. And sometimes it's the fitness component. Sometimes it's the fit because we have to live with each other for long periods of time. So it's a combination of all of those things. And it's not very common that once people get in that they realize that maybe it's not the right fit for them and leave the career for something else. It's funny because it is seeming to be a little bit more common now for that. I'm glad to hear that that's your experience. That's awesome. People should approach it like any other career, right? 
Yeah, it's hard because you work so hard to get there. And it's definitely different out here in the coast too. I can't remember how close you are to Toronto, but when you're living in these really expensive places, that needs to be taken into consideration too. Your lifestyle and family life and all that stuff. When did you start becoming a part of organizations? You mentioned the Rotary Camp Ignite, and then obviously we got connected uh, through the FSWO. I've always kind of been interested in stuff like that in the sense, I guess, I mean, I've been part of organizations as far as being a volunteer firefighter. So that was my first exposure to being part of an organization. Because again, like I said, it was a volunteer department and there's a lot of community activities that you do as a group of people in a volunteer organization. After I got a career position, I was part of search and rescue for a number of years. Actually, the rotary thing was interesting because, again, I saw an ad in the local paper because apparently I'm the person that looks at the local newspaper. (laughs) (laughs) They still make those? (laughs) They still make those. So I was looking through the local paper and I saw an ad for a rotary group study exchange. And I was like, this is too good. This can't be real. They take four young professionals in the first 10 years of their career and you go with a team lead from rotary and you do what's called a group study exchange. So you go to whatever the host country is and you spend three to four days in different rotary chapters traveling around that rotary district in that country and you'll experience things that are related to your profession and your cohort their profession so i applied for that and i went through the panel interview and whatnot i got selected to be part of team italy so i went to italy with a professional photographer and a border service agent and then we had our team lead and we traveled around all northern Italy. Through the process of planning your trip, you learn so many things about Rotary. And so I ended up joining Rotary when I came back. And I was a member of Rotary for a number of years until I moved locations to a different community. So then I left Rotary. So that's kind of how I got into Rotary. But I've been part of Fire Rescue International Training Association. Even when I was younger, I did volunteer work because that's how I got to experience really cool things is just by volunteering. So it's kind of the same when you do it with organizations, right? You're volunteering with Rotary or you're volunteering with Seroptimus or Frida or any of these things is you get to have these experiences that you wouldn't have otherwise had. And if life is a one-way ticket and you want to have as many amazing experiences, to me, that's what I do, right? For those that might not know what Rotary is all about, maybe just give me a quick overview of what they do. It's an international organization, and their goal is the betterment of the world. Different professionals and businesses come together and provide humanitarian service. So Rotary is one of the key organizations that helped eradicate polio. Because it's an international club and there's different areas, those areas will sometimes partner with other areas and other places of the world. So if you actually look around, you'll see the Rotary symbol. It's a wheel. It says Rotary International. You'll see it in playgrounds, community areas where Rotary will raise money for their home community and then they'll build like a play area. For most people, they only get the reminder about Rotary when there's a parade. That's when it kind of stands out for me, but there's so much more. Well, and I love the meetings. So Rotary has weekly meetings and depending on which club, it might be a breakfast or a lunch club or whatever. 
But the amazing thing is people check their titles at the door. So it didn't matter that I was maybe a 10-year firefighter and I'm in Rotary with business owners and the mayor. You just check your title at the door and we're all part of Rotary. And there's a membership of well over a million members. And so it's kind of like the fire service in a way. You know what it's like when you go somewhere anywhere in the world and you meet another firefighter. It's your affinity group, right? And Rotary is the same thing. You can go anywhere in the world and you can look up online and see where their Rotary meeting is and show up at their meeting and they'll have speakers. And in fact, ironically, I actually was introduced to Rotary. I think it might have been before my exchange. Actually, it was after my exchange, but we did presentations to try and raise money to send some fire trucks down to El Salvador through Firefighters Without Borders. So you go to these meetings and you learn really interesting things. What's Seroptimist? So Seroptimist is very similar to Rotary on a smaller scale. This was when I had moved to a new community and I wasn't a part of Rotary anymore. I hadn't really kind of gotten around to joining and finding the new Rotary club because I could have just joined the club here in my new hometown, but life gets busy. I didn't. And I was running with a gal who told me about Seroptimist and it's very similar. It's an international group, but they're focused on women and girls specifically. And what about Camp Ignite? Camp Ignite was started in 2011, was our first year. And that was something that I initiated myself. There's fire girl camps all over North America and in fact, all over the world now. In 2010, I went to the International Women in the Fire Service Conference, and one of their workshops was on creating girls' camps. So when I came back after that conference, and I had met some of those people, and they linked me up with the women from Ottawa who had just done their first year with Camp Fit. And so I was inspired to try and see what we could do out here on the West Coast. But at the time, there were very few women in my department. And I didn't think that having just a department only program would really be what would work best for us. So I got together with a couple other women firefighters from different municipalities and came up with this idea to do a provincial camp whereby fire departments host participants. So we put together the application process, we put together everything, and then we build the program itself. But we send it to the fire departments throughout the metro Vancouver area. And the fire department officials will sponsor a youth from their school district. And that fire department then has to provide the youth with the turnout gear, a hall visit, and then they come to us for the program. In the past, it was an overnight program. We stayed at Simon Fraser University overnight, and we transported all of these participants in fire department vans, and we would have host departments. So it would change around. A small department that doesn't really have the capacity to have their own program really gets to be a part of this because they can host a day. And we show up there with an entourage of career women firefighters and 20 or so youth. And that department will run certain activities. That day might be high angle day, rope stuff, or that department might be better suited to do SCBAs. And then the grand finale was always at the Justice Institute, the fire academy, where the youth would get to go into the burn building and experience a cold start. And the whole idea of that program, honestly, was not so much to make firefighters out of these youth, but through my experiences with other things like Seroptimus and Rotary, I do see the value in just empowering these young kids and letting them know that they can do whatever they want in life. In fact, I got an email from a participant from 2016, I think it was, 
couple of weeks ago asking if I would be a reference for her med school application. Wow, fantastic. Yeah, this is an experience that she obviously remembers and an experience that she's using on her application for med school. So it's not just about the firefighting. What this program also allowed for was us women firefighters and women firefighters that maybe don't have other women in their municipalities to be able to come together and work together and have that support network for each other as well. Is the program ongoing? It is. So we're in the transition period and there's a new board because, again, it's really exciting that there's other people that want to take this on. So I organized it for 11 years and now we've got a new board and trying to sort some things out and set things up. So the program will definitely be ongoing. We did do it this year. We even did it last year. I organized it last year during COVID. It was, you know, masks on, it was outdoors. It was definitely a different experience than what we've had in the past. And then this year, again, we did two days of outdoors, no overnights and the rest of that. But yeah, it's pretty exciting to be part of, for sure. And then how did you get connected with the Fire Service Women of Ontario? Well, actually, that was kind of my connection. After that first conference, I went to somebody from that conference connected me with the gals from Ottawa who started Camp Fit. So I met them by email back then and then Facebook. And then as FSWO started, I've been connected with a lot of those women for a number of years. And then last year during COVID, the Fire Service Women Ontario organization actually did a virtual symposium, which I'm going to plug because it's coming up again. But they did a virtual symposium in October, November last year. And because it was virtual, so many people from all across Canada were participating. And it's really grown Fire Service Women Ontario enough that, in fact, as a person from British Columbia, I was nominated and elected to be part of their board, which I always feel funny saying out loud because I'm a board member for Fire Service Women Ontario, but I live in British Columbia. But it just goes to show the growth of that group. I've gone to several of the conferences in the past. It's been an amazing experience. And then now that I'm on the board, I'm actually part of the planning process, which is really exciting because I love to do this kind of stuff. So back when you got on and we talked about being a trailblazer and a pioneer in a real sense, it wasn't easy and maybe it still isn't easy. What helped you stay in and navigate it? Was it having these other pillars in your life? That's a really good question, but I think you're right. Like having all these different avenues in my life that kept me motivated and kept me going was definitely a source for my resilience for sure. But I also think that a big part of that resilience was the connection with other women and my affinity group, really, because having those shared experiences. So that's been a huge help in fostering my resilience for sure. And obviously there has to be growth and self-awareness and change within the fire community to just normalize anybody that's on the job that deserves a job to be there. Obviously, everyone has to work together to do that. But maybe you could speak specifically about what advice you would give to women that are trying to get into the service now or maybe new in the service and they're having trouble navigating it. Are there day-to-day things that you would have in mind and then larger scope things like obviously being part of these organizations? 
So aspiring firefighters and those that are in the early years, I do encourage you to connect with other women. I know that there's a bit of a self-preservation thing that happens in your early years. You just want to fit in. So by connecting with other women, that makes you stand out. So I know that a lot of people don't necessarily like to do that until they've been around for a little bit. But I do strongly urge people to connect with other people that have been there for those shared experiences. You know, not that some of those experiences might be great, but it will help you put them in place in your brain so that you don't kind of rattle around there, right? And then again, as far as the resiliency, it's no different than all of us. What we need to do to maintain that resiliency is get the sleep that you need, have different kinds of community exercise, all of those things that I would say for anybody to do. And we do have different organizations like Fire Service Women Ontario, which it's on the cusp of becoming a Canadian-wide organization. So just because it says Ontario in it and you happen to be from Winnipeg, don't let that dissuade you from wanting to join. There's pretty minimal fee to join. As far as aspiring firefighters go, reach out to all kinds of people to really get to know what is expected in the processes that you are going through. And really understand what the job is before you put your whole world into pursuing it. Did you already have, when you were joining, a strong sense of who you were? Were you already aware of boundaries and setting those with people and knowing when you could stand up for yourself? I would say, yeah, probably. Because I was 28 when I became a career firefighter. And I had already done some cool things in my life and pushed myself. So I definitely felt strong in who I was. But sometimes it's hard because they want to crush that out of you back then anyways. I don't think the culture is quite like that anymore. Thank goodness. And then I guess you'd already experienced interacting with so many different types of people too, that you could recognize who these people were. And it's not as easy to hide behind the uniform and the title. If you're younger, I think you sort of get overwhelmed by that and you can't see, oh, you're just not a good person. Right. People get away with a lot more. Yeah, that's true. So your opinion is that things are getting better? Oh, unbelievably so, for sure. It's not the dinosaurs, it's the dinosaur eggs we have to worry about, right? (laughs) That's a great way to put it. That's true, right? We don't hire bullies, bigots, assholes. We don't hire them, we make them. But they're few and far between now, so that's good. You've touched on a few points about your health and your cancer diagnosis. Tell me about when that came to be a part of your life and how you made your way through that. Yeah, so in the fall of 2019, I did my routine mammogram and I hadn't really gone, to be quite honest, as often as I was supposed to. So I was behind the eight ball a bit. So, hey, everybody out there, listeners, go get a mammogram. So I went and had a mammogram and they found a tumor. It was a small tumor, but it was tumor nonetheless and cancer. So I was diagnosed in December of 2019. I was pretty fortunate. I had my surgery within five weeks of my official diagnosis, but it kind of knew a little earlier because it takes a while for the diagnosis to happen. So I think it was probably mid-November was when I was fairly confident this is the road I was going to go down. And then in early January, I had a mastectomy. So they tested all the lymph nodes and they came back good, which was great. But what they do is they take the cancer and they send it away for what's called oncotype testing. They test the cancer cells to find out their level of aggressiveness. It gives you a scale between one and a hundred. And mine was high enough that it warranted I had to do chemo. So 
But what I didn't have to do is radiation. So radiation is based on the margins. So when they cut the cancer out, how much tissue is between where the cancer was and the tissue that remains, I guess. Please, you know, any doctors out there, forgive me. So I didn't have to do radiation. I did have to do chemo for four months. And my first chemo was February 28th last year. And you know what happened in February, March. Yeah. <laughs> we ended up in the lockdown. So it was a pretty challenging time for sure. Being immunocompromised during the beginning of the pandemic. I had people grocery shopping for me and bringing stuff. In terms of my own way of dealing with it, like right from the get-go, I was pretty good about taking things one step at a time. And I think I got that from my experiences doing Ironman because the coaches and the people that I've had helping me along my Ironman life, it was always, you can't worry about what happens 10 kilometers down the road. You need to be where you are right now or you're not going to get down kilometers down the road. So I used that to navigate my way through my diagnosis. When I found out, okay, well, I have to have a mastectomy, great, all right. And then I find out, okay, well, great, I have to do chemo. I'll just have to take it one step at a time. And even, you know, I have another mammogram for my remaining boob uh, coming up in November. And sometimes my mind will wander a little bit, like, oh, God, here we go. But you can't, because what good is that going to do me today? It's not going to serve me any good to do that. So that's kind of how I navigated that in those earlier months. I have a beautiful Shiloh Shepherd, and I went out with her every single day. Days that I had chemo, I was out with my dog. Days after chemo, and you have to do a bone marrow injection to help increase your immunity and your white blood cells. So I would do this bone injection, and then you have to take steroids. So you're on all these different things. And Oh, the leg pain because your big bones, when they start producing, it was almost like you're having a growth spurt, but it was a little more consistent. But I would still be out walking. And I was pretty fortunate with my experience with chemo that I wasn't as sick. I had my moments where it wasn't great, but because I tried to be pretty active. I also, again, using my Ironman experience, when you're training for an Ironman and you're working full-time, part-time, you're volunteering, you're doing this, I mapped things out a lot. I was very much a planner. Okay, well, I need to get this workout in here. I need to do this studying or whatever the case may be. So I kind of mapped my days out like that, even when I was going through chemo. And of course, it was the lockdown. So you know, I wasn't going anywhere, but I'd make a list of things I needed to do. Okay, I need to meditate for 10 minutes today. And I was doing online courses. Sarah courses because I hadn't quite figured out to use that time to actually get my university degree. That wasn't until December of 2020, but I was taking online Coursera courses and I would sit down and I would have to do an hour today and I'd have to walk my dog. So plan it all out. And that's kind of what got me through going through chemo during a pandemic lockdown. Did any part of you consider not continuing with the career because of the risk associated with it? Um, you know, I definitely waffled and it's been challenging. I've had my moments because, of course, for the listeners that might not know, I mean, most people are firefighters that listen to this, but it is occupational illness. And as of 2017, breast cancer was added to the list of presumptive legislation cancers. And I had no history of this in my family, as far as I know. So I had thought of that kind of thing. When I came back to work, I actually went back to work barely out of my chemo, just working from home. I got a computer and I would just do some research and do a couple hours a day, not because anybody asked me to 
or WorkSafe asked me or my employer asked me, nobody. It was because I wanted to. I wanted to try and be connected to the fire service. It had already been off for a long time. So I did that. September was when I was going back full time as a training officer, like an acting training officer. I already was an acting training officer before my diagnosis. So I had meaningful work to do when I came back. So I was scheduled to come back in September and the smoke was coming up from Washington from the wildfires. So I was going right back to work. I was super stressed. I had spent my whole summer outside riding my bike and that's the only real kind of connection with people was always outside. And now I'm like, great, I can't be outside because of the smoke. Smoke is what gave me cancer and it ended up presenting itself as shingles. So in September, I had shingles. So I was back off work for a little while. I landed back at work in October of last year full time and I've been back since working in the training division as a training officer. Yesterday was my first day working at the fire academy. You know, I'm not going to go in and teach live fire scenarios, but that's only like a couple days of the week. There's lots of other things that the recruits need to do that isn't being inside the burn building. So I do think about that stuff. I'm not going to purposefully put myself in some of those situations, but I do have this strong urge to go back to the fire company. As of the last month, I'm kind of there. I'm ready to get back onto the trucks. My position now is acting captain. So I'm grateful I have meaningful work to do. That's what's important. I've been an instructor type person my entire life from teaching fitness classes when I was younger, teaching swimming lessons, life-saving courses. I became a first aid instructor when I was 19. So I've always had that kind of sense. This is actually a little different because I work for a very large department. So the training officer isn't necessarily the one that's always teaching. It's the one that's organizing and planning. So it's almost like an assistant chief kind of in a smaller department in some ways. It kind of equates to a little bit more like that. So I'm learning a lot, which has been great. So your department has members from the floor doing the teaching and you're organizing? Pretty much. We have shift instructors and then we have acting training officers. I'm kind of in a weird gray area where I'm actually working what a full-time training officer position would be doing for a number of different reasons. But yeah, generally there's other people. So I do a little bit of teaching, but a lot of organizing. You mentioned to me in your write-up that with the presumptive legislation that you were actually part of the group of women that went with the BCPFFA to advocate for the legislation to go through. Yeah, what a weird twist of irony that was. We had a female fire investigator here in BC who was diagnosed with breast cancer and the provincial was lobbying to have breast cancer added. So her, along with a couple of us, went and assisted our union delegates to speak with the provincial legislature and help lobby to have breast cancer added. So it was added in 2017. And then two years later, I was diagnosed. And I'm the first of the career women in this province to be diagnosed. I think it really just speaks to how it's important to participate and be a part of these things, whether it touches you directly or not, because you never know when it's going to. Yeah, you're right. As far as returning to the trucks and advice for other firefighters, are you a heavier advocate for PPE now? Did you have certain habits before that you won't have now or things that you've changed? As a culture, we're way ahead of where we used to be in terms of making sure that we are doing all the right things. I mean, in my early years, and you might even remember, some of the more seasoned listeners might remember, you know, we would wear our turnout gear in the TV room. Now there's glass doors that divide the truck bay 
to the living quarters. That didn't exist in the early years. So there's those things themselves that have evolved. And then the habits, we clean our PPE a lot more often. I think people used to look at dirty helmets as a sign of experience. Now people are like, you're an idiot, go clean your helmet. So we're in a much better place for everyone. And it goes across the board for a lot of different things. The resilient minds that we teach our firefighters, the way we treat each other, the way that we educate, we've evolved. So it's great. Yeah, we can show our worth on fire scenes as opposed to trying to advertise it with our gear. Yeah, I like that. Have you been a part of any peer support or mental health education within your department? I'm not part of our peer support per se, but I am one of our Resilient Minds instructors. So, and you may be familiar with the Resilient Minds program. It has moved across the country. It was in 2016, the Canadian Mental Health Association, in partnership with Vancouver Fire Rescue, had built a program called Resilient Minds. Initially, it was meant for the Vancouver Fire Rescue Services and has since morphed into the province. And now it's being taught nationally. It's four modules. The first module teaches you a little bit about the brain, a little bit about how to recognize in yourself when you're struggling different things about your own mental health. And then the second module is how to recognize mental health issues in your coworkers. And then the third module is how to use what we've been taught in the first couple modules when dealing with the public. And then the final module is all about self-care. So every single firefighter in the province of BC is now being taught this. And they've revamped the program and it's being taught all across Canada in different departments. Because there's a lot of different mental health programs that are out there. But I think that people are finding this one to be the one that departments are interested in using. So it's pretty amazing for sure. Have you found that the culture where you are has shifted drastically in this arena too? For sure. It's appalling that I have been to more firefighter suicide funerals than I've been to weddings. But I think that now people are accepting of their own vulnerabilities. So you don't have to hide it all the time. It's okay to recognize this in yourself. It definitely has changed for the better. Do you think it took so many departments experiencing losses to suicide to finally wake everybody up? I would safely guess that that played a part in the commitment to our own mental well-being. Just speaking from personal experience within my own department and losing a number of members for various reasons, but we lost a number of members over a short period of time. And I think, you know, we were all connected and it broke down any remnants of people being resistant because we were all hurting. It definitely bonded everybody, but also shook off the last of that front. And we all realized that we needed to change. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And everybody has a story coming into your day at work. There's things that are going on in your world. We all have that. Whether it's you had an eating disorder or your spouse has a diagnosis or your mom was a schizophrenic. And then we come into this world where we are navigating situations that are not normal as first responders. They're normal to us because that's what we do, but we're trying to manage these things on top of our own personal history. So I think now everybody recognizes, hey, we all have something. We teach that in the Resilient Minds. And I think people are okay sharing stuff a little bit more than they would be in the past. We're headed in the right direction in terms of self-care and building resiliency. As much as maybe we're still a dysfunctional family, 
What is your take on the family of the fire service? Does it exist? I think he nailed it right there. I think he nailed it. <laughs> We're a dysfunctional family. I mean, it's true. We all have that, that one relative, right? <laughs> So the fire service is no different. And we are a family because we do live together. It's different than other careers for that reason. We live together and we work together as a team as well. So it's definitely a unique workplace. But I think you nailed it. We're a family, but we're a dysfunctional one. (laughs) And as much as your work, the groups you've been a part of, their work has helped shift things in a positive direction. What do you see still left to do? I don't think that there's anything that we can really nail down one specific thing. I think we just need to keep moving forward in all of those different avenues, whether it's providing resilient minds training to our members, whether it's, you know, making sure that our gear is appropriately cleaned, or whether it's making sure that our testing for recruitment is relevant to the work that we do. So I think we just need to keep building on that because the world changes and we're constantly learning new things. It was always no fat yogurt we learn, okay, well, maybe that wasn't right. So the world just keeps evolving. So what we are doing now that we think is the best might not be the best in a few years. That touches on many aspects of the fire service, even with tactics. Oh, nailed it. Yeah. We're realizing that some of the stuff that was done way before we started was actually the right stuff to do. And some of the new stuff, maybe not and vice versa. Absolutely. Yep. And maybe we don't get so up in arms about dialoguing about what is best today. I think we need to keep re-examining. It's okay to keep re-examining and and trying. And I think we should re-examine everything all the time. One thing that we need to emphasize is being open-minded and open to change. Change management, that's a whole topic in itself. We need to navigate that as well. But just trying to keep moving forward and being open to the idea that the way things are today isn't always going to be the best for tomorrow, but it is the best for today. Right. (laughs) And in life, really, you only know what you know. Some people are just ignorant people in whatever topic it might be. They just don't know. And until they know, you can't hate them for it. We just need to be open-minded to recognize, hey, I don't know this. I mean, there's a lot of stuff I don't know, and there's a lot of stuff I get wrong. You learn that the older you get and the longer you've been on, especially in the fire service. Yeah. I try to be more kind to myself about not knowing and about still making mistakes. And then also trying to frame in my mind that, well, just because you quote unquote wake up to something doesn't mean that everybody else around you instantly has to wake up to it too, because you were asleep for a long time. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, I like that. That's that's a great way to put it. They'll come around to it maybe or maybe not, but it's not always up to you to make that happen. Everyone has their own journey. Yeah. Have you read or listened to Think Again by Adam Grant? It's on my wait list right now. Oh, awesome. So I always go, so <laughs> I know. You're going to love it. You're going to love it. Because I follow you. So uh, it's funny because I, I think we listen to a lot of the same and read a lot of the same books. Right. So I was really looking forward to this conversation. But um, what I do is I go through Audible and I look to see if it's available at the library before I buy it. And if it's, you know, if it's like eight months to wait, then I'll just buy it with my credit because I do mm. the Audible. So I get one credit a month for 15 bucks. So like I said, I'm, like, I'm a bit of a book nerd. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that one. So on that topic, then maybe recommend a bunch of podcasts and books. Okay. 
Well, multiple calls. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That's kind of you. (laughs) I do love Freakonomics. And there's one that is no stupid questions. Angela Duckworth. Have you heard of Angela Duckworth? No. She wrote a book called Grit. You might like that one. And then there's Stephen Dubner. There's the two Stevens that wrote Freakonomics. One of them is in this No Stupid Questions, and their banter back and forth is priceless. So she's a psychologist, and he's an economist. So super interesting, and it comes out once a week. So I love that one. The Mental Illness Happy Hour. He's a comedian. Um, used to do dinner in a movie, some TV show, I guess, in the 90s. So he interviews all kinds of people. Some of them are people from his support groups, and some of them are listeners. And But that one's pretty much everybody has a story kind of thing. I do love listening to the wondery ones the shrink next door or those kind of ones i just scroll through those as far as books go i generally listen to the audio books i do biographies or personal growth by audio and then i'll read novels and things like that i'm actually reading a fire one which is really great right now it's fully involved leadership gary ludwig i'm just starting that one so i heard about that in a course that i'm working on through the ji that one's great so far. Um, if anybody's curious, I'm on Goodreads. Goodreads is a, a super fun way to look and see what people are reading and find books. It's a book nerd thing. Any of the women listeners out there, lean in. Cheryl Sandberg, who actually wrote a book with Adam Grant as well, Option B. Have you read Option B? No. She's the CEO for Facebook. It's about women in leadership. It's really well written. Talks about how we can support each other through the different decisions that we make. I really enjoyed that one. Well, speaking of women in leadership roles, you mentioned about being an acting captain. So what made you want to get into that role and how have you found it? Um, here in Canada, it's a seniority-based system. So when you get to a certain vintage, you start going through the process of studying and writing. That's just the next role in your career. 2015 or 16, I did my lieutenant. I was out steady as a lieutenant before I went off on sickness and then went into the training division. So I did my captain's exams in 2019 or was it 2018? I can't remember. It was a while ago now. We have both on our department and they're two separate steps. For some departments, it's one step. Yeah, we don't have the lieutenant position. What's your thoughts on it? Well, I think it depends on the size of the organization too, right? I mean, some departments, if you only have one piece halls, then you only really have captains. So it completely depends on the organization. It would be that first step into taking some more ownership and accountability in a leadership role. I do like that idea, but it doesn't play for some organizations for sure. The lieutenant essentially is in charge of their crew, but the lieutenant could be in charge of a fire scene initially or any emergency scene for that matter, because if you're first in, you're first in. It doesn't matter if you're a captain or a lieutenant, so you're still first in. So you still need to set things up. So But I do like the idea of having the lieutenant being able to have a little bit of mentorship from the senior officer in that hall if you're at a two-piece fire hall, for sure. But having said that, just because you're at a hall with a senior officer doesn't mean that officer is going to provide you with any leadership at all because they may not be able to or interested in. Lastly, where are you at with health now? How are you feeling? Are you still going to push and do ultras and marathons like you were before? What are your health and fitness goals in the next few years? Well, I definitely have it in me. I'm already thinking around what am I going to do? I can't stop myself sometimes. 
distance. I did one race this year, a few weeks ago. It was a 50K gravel race. I was supposed to do the 100, but all my friends were only doing 50. And I was like, oh, I don't want to have them wait for me. So I just did the 50 and it was fun. And I know it sounds funny to some people that it was short, but for me, it was short and I raced it and I placed and I'm not used to that. Cause like I said, I always taught myself to just go further and not necessarily go harder. So that was super cool. I've done, I don't know, a dozen Ironmans. I honestly have no idea how many ultra trail races I've done. I couldn't count. I've done some pretty crazy swims. So I've kind of done a lot of that stuff. So I feel pretty okay with not doing that. But what I do like to do now is more adventures. You know, I did a backcountry mountain bike trip this summer. So I kind of like that idea of just kind of pushing myself, but not it being an event per se. And I'm still riding. I can't run anymore. Knees don't like that at all. But I still swim. But I love the bike. I love mountain biking, road riding, gravel. You mentioned to me that you might want to do a 10K swim. I was thinking about doing that this summer. The swim isn't so much about doing the swim to challenge myself to do it because I've done that and it's not, I mean, it is hard. For me, it's because I had the mastectomy and just to show other people out there, well, you know what, you can do whatever. Just because you had a mastectomy doesn't mean you can't be physically active. So that would be why I would want to do something like that. But I have to figure out where and the timing and stuff. I didn't do any open water swimming last year because I was immunocompromised in 2020. And then this year, it was, to be quite honest, just too lazy to get my shit together to actually get to the open water. I was too busy riding my bike. <laughs> I did swim in the pool because it was convenient, uh, the outdoor pools, but I haven't been in my wetsuit in two years. But I did think about it earlier when we were talking the first time I was thinking about doing something like that, just to hopefully inspire somebody else who might be in my position that, no, you don't need to go and do that, but you can definitely join a breast in a boat or go to the gym or whatever. I'm sure that you have inspired people just by what you've offered with this talk. And I'm sure that'll be another piece that they can take from. I hope so. So Steve King is not the author, but Steve King is a local here in BC and he announced Ironman and the marathons and stuff. But he has the saying, aspire to inspire before you expire. And I love that. I love it. Where can people reach you if they want to reach out to you? I'm on Facebook. I'm not very good with like Instagram. I, I guess I'm of that vintage of people that uses Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so they can find me through that. Fire Service Women Ontario as well. And then I, I am on LinkedIn as well. Yeah, they can find me. <laughs> well, I appreciate you taking the time to finally chat with me and I hope I didn't disappoint. <laughs> no, that was great. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And again, I aspire to inspire before I expire. So hopefully somebody got something out of the chat. Thanks for doing what you do. I love podcasts. And I think that people sharing their stories is pretty powerful. And everybody has a story. And it normalizes so many things in this world when you hear from other people. Well, to hear that you listen to so many and you still take the time to listen <laughs> to mine. I appreciate that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Scott. 